Our scripture reading this week from the lectionary is 1 Samuel 16. I'll be reading from verse 1 to 13. The Lord said to Samuel, the prophet, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Yeah, take a cow. Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him, the prophet has come to town, and they asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel, Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Ilabad. <coughs> And thought, whew, surely the Lord anointed, the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadad and had him pass in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Then Jesse had Shammah pass in front, but Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one. Then Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen uh, any of these. So he asked Jesse, um, Are these all the sons you have? Oh yeah, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's off tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. I really like this story. The, the prophet is heartbroken about the failure of Israel's first king, the king who he had anointed. He sets off on a strange errand. God has sent Samuel to anoint a new king, which is going to be a bit awkward because Israel already has a king. Samuel knows how risky this mission is. He even points out that God's plan seems to have a major flaw in it. Verse 2, but Samuel said, uh, how can I go and do this? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. But God doesn't seem too worried. So Samuel, with quite a bit of anxiety, follows the Lord's instructions and heads to meet Jesse and anoint one of his sons to be the next king over God's people. So the prophet meets the sons of Jesse looking for the one that the Lord will choose as the next king. The proud father parades out all of his biggest, best, brightest, strongest, handsomest sons 
brings them all out in front of Samuel to see which one will lead the people. They follow the normal, conventional, cultural expectations of the day, bringing out the oldest, the firstborn son, first. The one who carries the honor and the legacy of the family. And then moving down the line through the birth order. But God has not chosen any of them. Now I think folks frequently miss the humor in some of these stories. Like the prophet of the Lord travels across the country to go meet Jesse. Tells him that he's going to anoint one of his sons to be the next king of Israel. Like bring your sons, I'm going to pick one of them. And Jesse seems to forget to bring one of his kids. He brings all the ones that he thinks are likely to be chosen as the future king. And even when Samuel rejects all of them, he doesn't think to call up David. The prophet has to ask him, like, uh, bro, Jesse, got any more uh, sons hiding anywhere? Jesse almost seems to have forgotten his eighth son. To be fair, uh, I do struggle to keep up with my two kids. I have called them by the dog's name at least once, so I'm not going to... I'll cut them a little slack, but come on, Jesse. So Jesse says, hmm, oh yeah! Verse 11, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's off tending the sheep. He's doing the dirty work. He's off being smelly and doing those things no one else wants to do. So they send for David in verse 12 and 13. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. Ouch. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. From a human perspective, this is an odd story. You see, the, the world of the Bible had this idea, and some of it came from the law of Moses, but most of it was just cultural, that the firstborn, the progenitor, had a special place, special rights and privileges. The firstborn carried the honor of the family, the name of the family, the estate of the father. At the time of the father's death, he was entitled to a double portion of the inheritance. They also had extra honor given to them and responsibilities in the family and could inherit the titles and the roles of their dad. So there are these customs at play here. There's some law at play here. There's some cultural expectations at play here. And there's tradition at play here. There's history and religion and honor at stake. And there's conventional wisdom involved. If you're going to pick a king, it seems reasonable to choose the oldest, the most mature, the most experienced, the most capable, the tallest, the strongest, the smartest, the most brave, the most handsome, the most talented, right? Etc., etc. But this is how human wisdom works. For those of us who are familiar with the Bible, we should have been ready. We should not have been caught off guard by this. We should have seen that we were being set up, that this story has been a trap for us to fall into, because God frequently seems to be in the business of upsetting and confounding human wisdom. And God has done this sort of thing before. We should have seen it coming. Think about the patriarchs. God chooses 
Abram and Sarai to become the parents of the chosen people, despite their old age and childless status. God chooses Isaac over his brother. God chooses Jacob over his brother. God chooses Joseph over his 11 brothers. How about Moses? God chooses Moses despite his moral failings and lack of confidence or qualifications to be the leader of the people. How about the people that God chose? When God liberates the Hebrew slaves, God is choosing a people without a king, without an army, without a nation, without land, without power or wealth. Not an empire, not a kingdom, but an enslaved, defeated people will be God's chosen tool to accomplish the divine plan in the world. Think about it. God uses people like young Joshua, like Rahab the prostitute, like the many judges and heroes of the tribal age of the Hebrews. Ehud had some sort of disability. Yael was a foreign woman. Uh, when Gideon, the cowardly farmer turned general, was able to rise an army of 30,000 men to fight the Philistines. God had him decimate that number and send 29,700 of them home to face their oppressor's army with a group only 300 strong. And those are just the examples up to this point of the story, up to David. This is a major theme throughout the whole Old Testament. So what about the New Testament? You don't have to go far to find it, right? By the second chapter of the first book of the New Testament, the author of Matthew is riffing on Micah 5 when he says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. In fact, the whole Christmas story plays on this unlikely hero and choosing the second, the small, the weak, the outsider. It's all there. The pregnant, unmarried woman travels to this sort of nowhere town. When she gives birth, she and her fiancé are not able to acquire proper accommodations. They are visited by smelly and despised shepherds from the edge of society. They're visited by a group of magi, foreigners of the wrong race and the wrong religion, who the Old Testament would have had them execute. This family is then forced to flee their small town and indeed their whole country because this child is so hated and feared by their own government that the king seeks to kill the child. He, he's willing to slaughter an entire generation of babies to try to get this kid. Oh, and that baby, as we all know, is Jesus, God incarnate. And let's not overlook how intense that is. Philippians gets this right. In chapter 2, verse 7, it says... That Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. God enters into the physical world, into human culture and society with all of its dangers and darkness. God makes God's self vulnerable. God chooses vulnerability. God chooses to be born human, born in less than preferable circumstances, to a non-traditional family, to a peasant-class family, in a small subjugated nation under the boot of an empire that could and would kill him without a second thought. And God chooses to do so, to launch the rescue mission of cosmic salvation 
as a baby. How much smaller and unexpected can you get than God as a baby? From the biggest, greatest, most powerful thing you can imagine to the opposite. God chooses to package his message and salvific plan in total weakness and vulnerability. And then Jesus keeps it going. Jesus spends his ministry uh, and spreads his message as a homeless, itinerant, wandering preacher. His inner circle of only 12 men, most of them young, most of them from a peasant and working class, mostly uneducated, at least one terrorist, at least one Roman collaborator. Oh, and one of them would betray him. This is not what you will find in leadership books about putting a team together. What about Jesus' ministry itself? Mostly not done in the halls of power. We never see Jesus in the palace. We don't see him honored in the temple. He even gets kicked out of his, his home church, the synagogue he grew up in, when he's invited to guest preach. We don't see him teaching in any great seminaries or universities. He mostly just wanders around in the small towns of the Judean countryside. Do we see the theme in his teaching? How about the teachings about sparrows and flowers? What about the story of the widow's mite, where the kingdom of God being like a single lost coin or fungus, yeast? How about the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus uses the small offering of a small young boy to display the power and generosity of God? How about the teachings on being like children? In Matthew 18, Jesus tells his followers that they must become like little children to properly live in the kingdom of God. How about the mustard seed teachings? That's Matthew 13. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and planted in a garden. That is actually really bad gardening advice. Don't plant mustard in your garden. There were even ordinances at the time forbidding individuals from planting mustard in their gardens without permit. Unlike what some translations might lead you to think, mustard does not become the tallest tree. It's not a tree. It's more like a weed. It's for, To bring it into Georgia, it's like kudzu. If you plant it in your well-planned and manicured garden, soon you will have an overgrown yard made entirely of mustard. And that is what faith is like? That's what the kingdom is like? People in the Bible are constantly surprised and confused by these things. But we shouldn't be. We can keep this thing theme going, right? The thorn in Paul's side, the lack of faith of James and the rest of Jesus' family, the women who would not have been considered credible witnesses, are the first followers of Jesus to know the glory of the resurrection. The, the youth of Timothy, you see it, right? You see the theme, you see the pattern. Do I need to keep going? I could. The ultimate show of divine preference to use the unexpected, the weak, and the small is the cross itself. God accomplishes the climactic act in the story of salvation, through an experience of complete and utter failure. To be executed on a cross is to be made an example of. 
to be stripped naked, to be beaten to the point of not being recognizable, to be displayed publicly. And we all have this beautiful idea um, from Renaissance art that the cross is like 30 feet high. They crucify you at eye level so that everyone is right there. It's an intimate and horrible experience. To be crucified is to be totally destroyed and discredited. Your body, your dignity, your power, your life, your ambitions, your beliefs, your movement, totally destroyed. The ultimate shame, the ultimate defeat, the ultimate subjugation. It is insane. It is absurd. It is offensive. It is stupid to suggest that God would be subject to or would surrender to such a fate. Enter the first letter to the church at Corinth. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. That's a quote from Isaiah 29. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The Jews ask for signs and the Greeks for wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you are of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to abolish things that are, so that no one can boast. God is glorified in the weak, the powerless, and the small. Because to, to pull on 2 Corinthians 12, God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Our weakness is not a liability in the kingdom of God, it is an asset. Jesus told us this on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the persecuted, blessed are the humble. Why are they blessed? Because they are the tools God is using to build the kingdom. So what, what does that mean for us? So what? It means we stop being so concerned with our status, our accounts, our titles, our wealth, our age, our capacities. It means that we stop jockeying for political power. It means we stop stepping on or over others as we try to climb the ladder. It means that we don't wait for someone else, someone better, stronger, smarter, more connected, more qualified to come along and see the hurting in the world. We don't wait for politicians to fix our communities or pastors to heal the hurt in our faith family, or prophets to stand up against injustice in our world. God has chosen the weak and the foolish to confound the world. 
God has chosen the young, God has chosen the small, God has chosen the weak to accomplish his purposes. And if that is you, if you count yourself among the weak, if you count yourself among the powerless, if you count yourself among the losers, the outsider, the discarded, the forgotten, the disfavored, if you count yourself as too young, or if you count yourself as too old, if you count yourself as too small, then count yourself as blessed. What about the church? A uh, recent study I saw, we were chatting about church earlier. I, I keep, I try to keep a finger on the pulse of the American church. Uh, a recent study that I read said that the average Protestant church in the United States today runs about 35 on a Sunday morning. What does all of this mean for the small churches? It means that we don't leave the mission of the gospel to the big churches. It means that we don't leave the cause of justice to the big organizations. It means we don't leave the love of neighbor to anybody else. It means we don't obsess over finances. It means that we don't sit around and pine about the good old days when there were more people in the sanctuary. It means that we don't live in fear of continued entropy, but live and work and love and preach and witness and serve in the courage and strength that comes from knowing that God chooses the small things to reveal his power in the world. It means we don't limp along in anxiety over closing. The, the, the fact is, every church will eventually host its final service. But if we are a people who believe in resurrection, the fear of death should never be a motivating factor or a limiting notion for us. We, as the American church, must reconfigure our mission imagination, our ministry imagination, and move in faith, hope, and love, trusting that God has more than we need and believing that God has chosen the weak to confound the strong, the foolish to confuse the wise, and the small to change the world. Because, to paraphrase Mother Teresa of Calcutta, we were never called to be successful. We were called to be faithful.